Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll take a look at the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy with Dr. Thomas Honig. He's the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, and he was a member of the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee from 1991 to 2011. Following his 38 years of service in the Federal Reserve System, he became a director of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in 2012 and served there as vice chairman until 2018. Currently, he is a distinguished a distinguished senior fellow at the Mercatus Center. During the uh, the era of the Great Recession, immediately following that in, in 2010, uh, Dr. Honig was the sole member of the FOMC to vote against the Fed's decision to purchase large amounts of securities, treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, a policy known as quantitative easing. We're going to ask him about that and about the Fed's more recent round of quantitative easing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, we'll get his take on the Fed's current efforts to find a soft landing for inflation and the implications that has for the nation's long-term budget and economic challenges. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson, our Chief Economist, join us for the conversation. So, Tom, uh, Tori, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, this is Tom, and um, I'm glad to be with you. Happy to talk about these topics. They're very important for the U.S. and the future. Well, you know, um, we're really happy to have you. We, we don't uh, dive into monetary policy very often, particularly with, a, with an expert. We sometimes pretend we are experts and talk about it as if we were, <laughs> But look, you know, it used to be that if somebody brought up monetary policy to me on a panel or, you know, an interview or something, I would I would sound like an administration official and say, well, you know, the Concord Coalition just does fiscal policy and we leave monetary policy to the Fed. And uh, I found it increasingly difficult to get away with that because there, there seems to be an increasing interaction between fiscal policy and monetary policy particularly in a time of rising debt. And I, I kind of think a lot of that seems to have to do with quantitative easing. So I, I want to sort of begin there with your opposition to the, the Fed's uh, uh, initial quantitative easing measures in, in the Great Recession and, and what they're doing earlier. But before we get into that, I think maybe we should define the, the, the term <laughs> so people, our listeners know what the heck we're, we're talking about. So first, what, what is quantitative easing? Well, in its simplest form, quantitative easing is the Federal Reserve's decision to purchase government securities 
or government-guaranteed securities called mortgage-backed securities at that time, in mass in terms of growing their balance sheet, creating new bank reserves, uh, substantial amounts of bank reserves in a fairly short period of time, thus pumping a, a, a great deal of what's called base money, the ability then for banks to relend that money into the economy, stimulate the economy. It also has the effect of putting enormous uh, demand for securities, therefore lowering interest rates uh, and the Fed's policy towards zero interest rates at that period was enabled by uh, this massive purchase of government securities and this massive increase in uh, bank reserves and the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. So that's as simple as I can make it, and uh, uh, it, it, but it has a profound effect. So it's uh, it's one way that the Fed can help support the economy in a in a time of crisis, I guess. I mean, normally it can lower rates. If it lowers rates to zero, that's about it. So quantitative easing, I guess, was a way of finding some other way. What were the uh, what what are the dangers that you foresaw? I mean, it sounds like a good thing. We we're gonna, you know, help stimulate the economy in a crisis. What what uh, were the things that you thought could be a problem with quantitative easing? Well, the first thing I would remind people is that the Federal Reserve is the only institution who can create uh, base money uh, at will. In other words, they can create a new liability on themselves through the banks called reserves. And this increases the amount of, of money, uh, base money, and therefore the amount of money the banks have to use uh, in the, to lend out in the economy or, or uh, for whatever purposes they feel uh, they want to use it for. And, and the effect of that is, um, my concern was at the time, by doing that, that is increasing money uh, by uh, massive amounts and by keeping interest rates zero, you were misallocating resources. You were introducing uh, a greater likelihood of a misallocation of resources by putting interest rates at zero and having all this money available. You would, in fact, cause uh, asset values to increase enormously. When you have a zero interest rate, of course, uh, securities values go up pretty dramatically. It also can increase the stock market. And as we found with that kind of excess in the market, uh, asset values went up really substantially. Well, that had the effect at a minimum of increasing uh, the wealth uh, in, in a new way. So if you held assets, you became relatively uh, wealthier than those who were wage earners who did not have um, um, new homes and didn't have a big stake in the stock market. And so you created a greater differences in the wealth distribution in the economy. And by putting interest rates at zero below what many people thought was a, an equilibrium level, in other words, you were having sa savers who received very little, subsidized borrowers who was able to borrow at very low rates. And therefore, you uh, in, you encourage speculation, uh, a misallocation in terms of, say, stock buybacks. And people say, well, when you buy back stock, you give uh, the, the people who are getting their money can reinvest it. Well, they do in the stock market, which increases the value of the stocks without really increasing the earnings outlook. So it has all these distortive effects. And over the long period of time, can in fact undermine the vitality of your economy, as I think it did in the United States. 
Um, I want to defer to uh, Steve Robinson, the chief economist here, to pick up the questioning. Yeah. So, Tom, let me let me sort of stick with where you were going there. I mean, most people think about rising asset prices. They think, okay, well, if if I buy a house and the value of my house goes up, that's great because now I can sell my house and make a profit. Or if I buy stock and the stock goes up, you say, oh, that's great because now I can pay for my retirement because my stock went up. And so people tend to think of rising asset prices, housing and real estate and stock market. They think of those as all being good things. But if you then turn around and say, well, wait, what if you think about in terms of inflation? If, If the price of goods and services, if gasoline and groceries and all of those things are going up, then that's sort of like a bad thing. And usually people sort of put those two categories into different pots. In other words, they think about rising prices, that's bad because that's inflation. And they think about rising asset prices and they think, well, that's good because that's wealth. And and so there's this potential disconnect because as you were suggesting earlier, I mean, what's kind of at the root cause of all of this is that when the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates, which they do through you know the open, open market process where they essentially are buying financial assets and creating, expanding the money supply, which then the banking system lends out and that creates more money for people to buy things. And in the case of real estate and and, and, and equities, uh, push up prices. So talk just a little bit about sort of the disconnect between what people think of inflation being bad, but they think of rising asset prices somehow as being good, but they sort of forget, you know, the baby boomers have now all benefited. We bought houses at low prices and we bought stock at low prices and those have all gone up and we think we're all wealthy. But now people are saying, well, wait a minute, what about our kids and our grandkids? They're not going to be able to afford the houses that we've bought because the prices have gone up so much. And if they buy into the stock market, when the stock market is really high, they may not make the same kind of return that we did. And so perhaps this, you know, we talk about reallocating wealth. It's also an intergenerational thing. What, what's, what's your sense here? Before you well, answer, Tom... I'm going to have to take a break. <laughs> and this okay. this always happens. So we'll just tee this up. And this time it wasn't Tory. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are talking with Thomas Honig. He's a former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. We're talking about monetary policy. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing monetary policy with somebody somebody who knows a lot about it, uh, Dr. Thomas Honig. He's the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. And when we took the uh, break, Steve, you had a question. Could you just like in one sentence summarize <laughs> the question you were teeing up? Yeah. So before the break, we were we were talking about the notion that the distinction between rising prices, which people view as inflation, and that's a bad thing, and rising asset values or rising asset prices, you can call it values or prices, but somehow that that's a good thing when housing and, and stock market, those when those prices go up, people think, well, maybe that's good. But when the price of goods and services goes up, that's inflation and that's bad. And at the root cause of all of this is, is, is the Federal Reserve policy. And you know, there seems to be this disconnect between asset values and, and, and consumer prices. So talk a little bit about how people view those as different things and maybe what the connections are. 
That's a very good question. And I would begin by saying that um, rising asset prices is inflation. Uh, if something costs more uh, today than it did yesterday, you've had an inflationary experience. Only now you're doing it with assets. And it has really many of the same effects as price increases. For example, if uh, housing prices are going up, let's say they double, those individuals who don't have a home, who are wage earners and who are saving for a home, and now uh, have to pay twice as much for that home. They have to have twice as much savings over the same period in order to put the down payment on if there is a down payment. Uh, and therefore, it blocks them out of the market. They they are the losers, although if I already own the home, I'm a winner. So it makes winners and losers rather than savers and borrowers out of all of us. And I think that's important, number one. Number two, by uh, having asset inflation uh, and stock market inflation, you encourage speculation. And let me give you an example of that. If, uh, if a hedge fund, uh, individuals who are speculators, uh, have a company, a manufacturing company that say is well capitalized, has a lot of equity. Well, it can now, those individuals can now borrow a lot of money at very low rates. They can pay a price for that stock. They can then take the equity out of that company, borrow more money to keep it running, and therefore make a very large uh, gain in a very short period of time. That's the speculative effects, and that encourages even more asset price increases, and therefore uh, takes uh, investing in new new plant equipment more difficult. Uh, it changes the dynamics of your economy. And that's what zero interest rates, and that's what quantitative easing does over time. And uh, I think that's extremely important to keep in mind when you talk about asset inflation, or asset prices increasing, it's the same as prices increasing. It creates winners and losers. And I think that's the unfortunate part. So so is there a case to be made that, that perhaps the CPI should include asset prices or, or we should have a better measure of inflation that includes asset prices? I mean, you may recall back in 1983, we took housing out of the CPI. It used to be that the price of housing was in CPI and we switched to what was called the rental owner, homeowner's rental equivalent, equivalent rent. Um, and they sort of made up this number to say, if you rented your own house, what would it? What would you be renting it for? Um, you know, could could you make an argument that maybe you know, if you look at price earnings ratios for the stock market, and when that becomes too high, that you've got inflation rather than real value for the market, or when home prices become too high relative to people's family income, they can't afford the house. I mean, could, could there be an argument or should there be an argument that maybe there's a way to include asset prices in our, 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 in our measurement of inflation? Well, I think, yes, they can. And they say they have by this implicit uh, rental in, uh, uh, price increase in uh, housing costs. Uh, but it is, as you say, it is a um, calculated estimate rather than why, why not just measure the rising price of houses, for example. And on the stock market, um, yes, when you see a, a vast amounts of, of price over earnings, you know that there is inflationary element to that. Uh, the main thing is then to look at inflation more broadly, but not to, but not to just ignore one sector that is asset prices and say, well, we're just gonna concentrate on, on uh, goods and services. And that's what we've managed to do. And I think that's misleading. Uh, I, I think in the long run, it has been very 
uh, harmful. Um, let, let me go on. You can you, you mean the, the effects. It, it's it's knowing what the effects of your policy are that you should temper your your policy. For example, uh, quantitative easing. While it kept interest rates at zero during the following decade, from 2010 to 2018. Uh, our productivity in the nation was actually lower than it was in the 90s after that recession. Wage increases were actually much lower than they were in the earlier period. So by engaging in a very aggressive monetary policy, even though you didn't have so-called price inflation for a while, you did have asset inflation, you did see a certain stagnation in the economy, and why not learn from those, from those events and not get yourself engaged and massive quantitative easing and zero interest rates when the effects are to misallocate resources, encourage uh, non-productive speculation in the economy, and harm the middle class and lower middle class. And, and you can see the harm just in terms of the social reaction to all this. Uh, after, the, after the great financial crisis, you heard things like um, uh, too big has failed. You had these protests uh, across the country. You had this unsettled uh, uh, social environment that we've had ever since. So I think there are harmful effects that you can observe from uh, a policy that was ill-advised. Tori, anything uh, anything you want to interpret here? <laughs> well, I, I'd like to ask, so I, I think the discussion so far has been very clinical, um, which very helpful, very informative. But I think it also serves to remind that, you know, there are real people behind some of these policy decisions that were made. Um, yeah, as we talk about quantitative easing with respect to the, the, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, and we talk about quantitative easing in response, in, with respect to the COVID epidemic, I feel like the choices uh, uh, for, for policymakers, both fiscal and monetary policy at the time, was, all right, we, 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 you know, the Fed acts independently and and doesn't provide you know the, these 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 resources uh, you know or or they do and in one sense if the Fed doesn't do anything then poor people get poor you know there's big recession big unemployment um, uh, so poor people get poor on the other hand if the if the Fed does act and and does help monetize the debt in response to these crises the the fiscal policy response to these these crises. The fact is rich people get richer, as you were talking about, their asset prices increase. All right. But either way, uh, there's going to be a wealth disparity that's that increases. Right. No matter which path you choose. But in the second path where rich people get richer, at least poor people don't get poorer. Or at least that's the way I'm sort of perceiving this. And so behind some of these these very important decisions with obviously important puts and takes, there's also this emotional decision behind, you know, trying to prevent poor people from getting poorer. So I guess my question to you is, is it the fact that the, the Federal Reserve got this policy all wrong and that there shouldn't have been any quantitative easing at all? Or is it that they held on to it for too long? The, it's the latter. They held on it for too long. Uh, let's understand one another and in terms of my differences, and that is I did not object to the massive liquidity injections into the economy in 2008 or even part of 2009 because we had this event. We had this terrible uh, crisis, and the Fed is created to help provide liquidity into an economy during the crisis. But quantitative easing was truly begun in 2010. And the economy had already started to improve 
in the third quarter of 2009. So you had the economy improving. You, and, and that's when the Federal Reserve says, all right, we're going to should say, all right, we're going to step back now. We're not going to tighten down, but we're going to stop easing into this recovery. We're going to stop a crisis policy so that the economy can rebalance, so that there's the liquidity that we provided can be used, and then we go from there. But the decision was made, and it was the year that I dis that I disagreed, was in 2010, when the economy was in recovery, and we actually increased the, the amount of money printing that we were conducting in a recovery. And therefore, we were accelerating price increases, both asset, uh, uh, primarily asset price increases over that period, and therefore accelerating the dispersion in wealth between those who have assets and can speculate and those who do not. And there we go. Again, in the, in the uh, pandemic, I understood completely and would have agreed if I were voting at the time on the 2020, March 2020 injections of liquidity into the system. As broadly or not, we can discuss that. But the fact of the matter is, I would have agreed with that. The recovery had be already begun, it, believe it or not, in August of 2020. All right, so you, you let it go a little longer to make sure. But this emergency policy of injecting enormous amounts of new reserves, new money into the system, went on uh, not only in 2020, but through 2021 and the first quarter of 2022, which enormously increased asset values. And by that time, actually worked into the uh, general prices of goods and services. Uh, that's that, that, that's when you're distorting your economy and I think undermining this long-run potential growth and, and the distribution of wealth within that economic system. And that's what I think is wrong. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson and I are discussing monetary policy with Tom Honig. He's the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing monetary policy with Tom Honig. He's the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. And we've been talking about a concept called quantitative easing, which uh, the Fed uses to inject some liquidity into the, uh, into the economy. And um, it's done that uh, most notably in response to the Great Recession. And then again, during the time of the uh, pandemic uh, recession, it raises the question of once you've done that, how do you get out of it? And I guess we're experiencing that now. So Steve, I want to defer to you for some questions about what happens after quantitative easing. Yeah. So just to put a little bit of context here, if you go back prior to the financial crisis, the Fed's balance sheet was less than a trillion dollars. And basically during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, they ran the balance sheet up to about $4 trillion. They were buying uh, tre government treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And then they held it at about $4 trillion. And I think around 2019, they were starting to let a little bit of it roll off. It might have come down just a little. And then, of course, the pandemic, COVID pandemic hit in 2020. 
and the Fed ran up the balance sheet again. This time they ran almost up to nine trillion. It was just a little about eight point nine trillion. And now the last year or so, the balance has been coming down. I think the last time I checked, it was about seven point six trillion or somewhere in that neighborhood. So it's come down a little bit. But needless to say, when you go from a trillion, you know, fifteen years ago to now seven and a half trillion. It's a huge shift in the way the Fed has operated in terms of this running this huge balance sheet and creating massive reserves for the banking system. And you know, I guess the question is, you know, what's next? I mean, how, how does does the Fed continue to maintain this large balance sheet, or do they continue to let it roll off and go back to something more normal, call, calling pre two thousand eight normal? Uh, are, are, are we in a new world? I mean, are we going to continue to see this large balance sheet persist and the Fed is going to continue to operate with large amounts of banking reserves, which they, have, of course, have to pay interest on uh, to, the, to the banking system? What's, what's your thought about the, how, what does the future hold for rolling off this balance sheet? Will it, will it happen and how soon or, or will it continue to persist? Well, I think the balance sheet which, as you said, was less than a trillion and got to nine trillion, will come down some more. It's down now to under eight trillion dollars. Uh, but now the banking industry has become dependent upon uh, those reserves. That's counted as part of the liquidity. They're very uh, used to having that. Uh, they've managed their balance sheet. The banking industry itself manages the balance sheet around that. So it's a little different world that we live in. Now, one of the things that is being discussed in the FOMC, in fact, uh, the chairman Powell uh, mentioned in his last uh, conference, uh, press conference, was that they were going to discuss the size of the balance sheet at, its up, at, at their upcoming meeting in March. And the question will be how much more, not whether we can bring it down, but how much more can we bring it down safely without creating a new liquidity crisis? And when I say a new one, I would remind people that in 2019, September, uh, the Fed had been in the process of uh, letting some of this government debt roll off its balance sheet. Uh, and therefore, the private sector would have to pick that up. And as they did that, they hit a point in terms of the bank's industry's liquidity that they had on uh, account with the Fed, its reserves, I hit a point where it caused them, that that is the banking industry, to stop lending to funds that were buying government securities themselves. And so interest rates shot up, and the Fed had to re-engage in buying government securities uh, in September uh, of 2019 at a fairly large amount, about $60 billion per month on average. And so there's this unknown, how much can you let the balance sheet come down before you have another liquidity problem? And that's really what the discussion will be. I think most people think it can come down more than it has so far, but no one knows the, the number. And so that's the world we live in. We live in an environment where we will have, the Fed will have a larger balance sheet and the industry will have greater reserve balances with the Fed going forward. What the right number is, we don't know. Part of that also will be influenced by how much debt the government has to issue. We have record deficits. And so here's the, here's the issue with government deficits that will affect that balance sheet of the Fed. The issue is there are three 
really sources of borrowers for the the government's uh, fiscal deficits. One is domestic. That is, you and me, banks, they buy government debt. The other is foreign. Uh, Japan, China, Europe might buy it. And the third is the Federal Reserve, who bought it in the great financial crisis and bought it afterwards and during the pandemic. So those are your three. Well, we know, number one, that the Fed says we're on quantitative tightening. So they're not buying any more debt at the moment. They're letting it roll off, and the private sector has to pick that up. So that's ongoing. We also know that foreign buyers are not as anxious to get more dollars. They have lots of them right now, trillions of dollars. And so while they're still buyers, they're more modest buyers. So that's not readily there for this very substantial new debt coming on the market. So what? who does that leave? That leaves the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve has to say whether it's willing to do that or not, because if it's not, there will be upward pressure on interest rates, even without the Fed uh, managing interest rates for its own purposes. And so that's part of the very substantial discussions, I think, uh, have to be going on inside the Federal Reserve and actually the federal government as it looks to its record-setting deficits and its record-setting interest on the debt as we go forward with higher interest rates. So it's a huge challenge going forward. What is the right size of the Fed's balance sheet and can it maintain it uh, in an environment where we're increasing our debt at the rate that we are right now? It's a huge question. You know, that raises uh, another question. You, you may have a follow-up, Steve, but but as you were talking, uh, you know, the Fed is set up to be independent um, and from the, the federal government or quasi-independent. But are we in a situation now, particularly with this rising debt, uh, that the the Fed and the, and the federal government are kind of in it together on fiscal and monetary policy? And is the monetary policy facilitating an unsustainable fiscal policy. In today's world, that's one of the debates going on. Is there fiscal dominance over the Federal Reserve's policy? In other words, is the debt so large and so important going forward that the Fed has to accommodate it by buying a government debt and keeping interest rates low? And um, I think it's a huge issue. I mean, the Federal Reserve was set up to be independent to keep the government from printing, from, from issuing too much debt and allowing it to say, no, we're not going to buy your debt. We're not going to print the money to buy your debt any longer. And that puts a discipline on the government. We used to have a gold standard. We don't have that anymore. All you have now is this Federal Open Market Committee who has to act independently as if they were the gold standard. And when they fail to do that, then we invite future inflation. And that's the that's the drama, if you will, going on, I think, inside the Federal Open Market Committee today, uh, as it deals with uh, monetary policy, its relationship to the federal government and the issue of debt, and the issue of debt for the payment of interest on that debt to avoid increasing taxes or reducing spending. Because the only other way you can deal with this is to reduce spending or increase taxes or some combination of the two. And the Federal Reserve, if it says no to the printing of money, means interest rates rise and puts more pressure on that Congress to reduce spending or increase taxes. 
So it has a big role to play. And if it is not independent, it will cave and print money and we will eventually reignite inflation in this country. Just so you know, in the the 80s, in the 70s, we did something similar to this. We had inflation, we had asset inflation, and we got to where we had 14% inflation, price inflation in the United States. And Paul Volcker came in and said, we're not doing this anymore. And we had this huge adjustment, very painful, necessary, but very painful. Well, if we don't take care of this now, it will get only larger and become more painful later on. And that's the drama that we have to face, uh, we, the American people, the Congress, and the FOMC. We're going to get into that uh, with some of the uh, follow-up questions in the next segment about where does this leave us now? What are the choices ahead? You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing monetary policy with Dr. Thomas Honig. He's the former president of the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing monetary policy with uh, Dr. Thomas Honig. He's the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Uh, And Steve, let me go to you for a question. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve has an inflation target. So in, in theory, they're trying to maintain, you know, an average price level increase of about 2% a year. That's sort of their their goal. But interestingly, there is no interest rate target. In other words, interest rates can be whatever the Fed sets them to be. And most recently, we've had basically a zero interest rate. But because inflation has been positive, two or three or four, actually was high as 9% back back a year ago, uh, you're talking about real negative interest rates, meaning that essentially you're paying back money that is worth less than what you borrowed. I mean, is there an argument to be made that you can tell the Fed has gone too far for too long when we have negative interest rates? And should should there be an argument that the Fed should try to avoid negative interest rates? Well, I think there is an argument that can be made that the Fed should avoid negative interest rates. However, the Fed really uh, wants to have negative interest rates because they think it is more stimulative. So that's uh, they have a, a concept called the uh, the zero bound, where they can't bring nominal interest rates below zero, uh, and therefore that hurts them getting even more negative real interest rates, which is difficult for some to understand, and I'm one of those uh, because I think there is a natural what they call a equilibrium rate of interest that brings savers and borrowers into a line. Uh, and that's really what you should be thinking about as a policymaker, not zero or negative interest rates. However, the, U- the U.S. thought zero was where it should be so that real rates would be negative. And much of the rest of the world actually had nominal negative interest rates. They arranged it to where there would be, if if you put money with the central bank, you had to pay them. So. To, and the idea was to keep to have them lend all that out so they wouldn't uh, hold it, which it didn't work at all. So, yes, your your concern about 
uh, not recognizing the importance of a uh, equilibrium rate of interest as the target is a correct, I think, view, but it is not in today's world uh, used very readily. Now, the Fed does have what uh, they estimate to be their equilibrium rate of interest called R star. They like to use it, and they think that's very low right now. Well, maybe it is, but I doubt that it's zero. I've said that for years. Uh, so you you can't you cannot go in that direction. You need to have uh, interest rates that are positive. Uh, the long term real equilibrium rate to bring savers and borrowers together is probably closer to two percent. Most economists would say, and therefore that should be your equilibrium rate over time. And you should not be going to zero distorting the economy and in, in, inviting asset inflation as they have and price inflation eventually over the long term. It's very important to uh, not allow the policymaker to go outside certain boundaries uh, when you know those boundaries are going to invite inflation, either asset and or price inflation in the future. Tori. Sure. I wanted to talk something about a little some a little more uh, existentially, get the word out there. Um, and that is sort of the the, the short-termism, uh, the, the viewpoint of our institutions writ large here in America, whether we're talking about Wall Street, the Federal Reserve, Congress, they only seem to be able to address the crisis that's literally sitting in front of their noses. Yet, Congress repeatedly looks to Congress and the Federal Reserve. They look to experts, whether it's nonpartisan agencies like GAO, CBO, Federal Reserve has a bunch of uh, economists and they have experts that they invite uh, to advise them about the future and what future trends look like. And it seems like repeatedly everybody ignores that advice. For example, we know we have these huge deficits uh, uh, looming. We know that we have unsustainable debt in our forecast. We know <laughs> that we need to make hard choices. Yet the government is asking me, all right, to plan long-term. It asks me to save for my children's college education, which I've done. It's asking me to save for my retirement, which I've done. And I've made sacrifices, you know, to make sure that I'm following that advice. Yet these institutions writ large seem incapable of thinking long-term. And I guess my question to you is, number one, has it always been this way? I mean, you know, I only started paying attention to this stuff in the late 90s. Can, is there Was there a period in history when our institutions did a much better job of thinking long term? And if so, how do we get back to that? If not, what, do you have any suggestions? Is there something that we should be doing differently uh, to get our institutions to start thinking more long term and about you know, future generations? Well, you're right. We are, as a nation, short term thinking. Uh, is now the norm rather than the exception. Uh, it has always been that way to some extent, but we understood that and we put boundaries around ourselves. Uh, as bad as it was, and the gold standard had its negative elements, the gold standard was there to control our habits of printing money freely uh, and causing inflation. But we gave that up. We thought, well, we'll put it in the hands of these experts and they'll do it for us. But the political pressure on me first uh, carries the day. And I understand I save, you save, but think about it in a different context. 
I have given many speeches to groups, uh, agricultural groups, for example, and they'll and then we'll agree. Oh, the deficit has to be taken care of. We've got to be more responsible. And I'll say, fine, we've got to get reduce the amount of subsidies for agriculture. And I get an immediate blowback. Oh, you can't do that. We need it. I'll go to an, a group, an investment group of retirees, 65, 66. And they'll say, yes, we've got to get the deficit under control. This is terrible. And I'll say, yes, we need to move the retirement age to age 70. And I'll get immediate blowback because it affects me. And I will do the same with the energy industry, with the housing industry. So it's it's that that inability to say, we're going to have a shared sacrifice. And that's where leadership comes in. When we have decided as a nation with our leaders in Congress and in the executive branch, yes, we have an issue. Yes, we need to take care of it. And yes, we have to have shared sacrifice. So we're going to look at all expenditures. We're going to look at all taxes. And we're going to get this thing brought into control gradually. We're not going to, we don't have to strangle ourselves. All we have to do, all, it's a big all, is we have to begin to, to spend less, borrow less, to where we are increasing our debt at a much slower pace than our real gross and domestic product, our real national income is increasing. Then over time, we reduce that as a percent. That means we have more funds for private investment, for innovation, for providing enough, not more than uh, we can afford, but enough for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Only when we make those hard choices as a nation, and our leadership takes us that way, will we uh, begin to address this problem systematically and for the long term. Otherwise, eventually we will print more money, I can assure you. We will have more inflation because that's the only way you reduce the relative size of the government debt is to devalue the, 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 uh, the debt by inflation. And we undermine our social fabric because it will have winners and losers big time and conflict. And only when our leadership understands that and carries it forward, and only when the American people are convinced that they are not the only ones sacrificing, like you say, I'm saving, but who isn't? Those are the hard points that lie ahead for us, or we have a very likelihood of continued inflation, both asset and price in the long term. I have one uh, quick last question because I get this a lot. Um... And it's people trying to avoid making short-term decisions. I think it's like, and I get this. I get this on college campuses a lot. The United States has the world's reserve currency. Um, we shouldn't really be worried about the debt because because of that. We can just simply print money. Uh, what do you say to people that give you that argument? It is it is a child's argument. That's how I could describe it. <laughs> you cannot print money indefinitely without restraint and expect your currency to retain its value. Now, the United States is blessed. We have a, The reason we are the reserve currency, we have a large, successful economy. Don't take it for granted, folks. It's not your right. It's something that we have earned by sacrifice over the past years. And going forward, it can't be taken for granted. Remember, we are not the first nation to be a reserve currency. What happened to those nations before us? Remember that. It's not your right. It's something you earn. And we are frittering it away. 
Well, we always uh, talk about entitlement reform. We we <laughs> we have to we have to remind people that having the reserve currency uh, isn't a, a U.S. entitlement. So. Uh, I want to thank you, Tom, very, very much for uh, talking to us today, walking us through monetary policy and uh, asking our questions. As we said, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, just seem increasingly intertwined. And, and uh, so we wanted to dive into some of the aspects of it. We hope that uh, you come back and join us again sometime. We didn't even get to ask whether we have a soft landing. So we're going uh, <laughs> to we'll talk to you later about the uh, soft landing, whether or not we'll get well, there. <laughs> anytime. I've enjoyed this very much. I hope it's been helpful. I know there's some of it that gets a little esoteric, but I hope it's been valuable to your listeners as well. Well, one place that uh, esoteric stuff is fine is on our show. <laughs> that's, a, that's okay. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. That's all the time we have for this week. Tune in again next week when we'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future. 